Good morning, church. It is good to see all of you here this morning. If, if you're new here, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here, and I would love to meet you after the service. So if you wouldn't mind, please, after the service is over, come up to me, introduce yourself to me. I want to I get to, to know you. And if, this is, if you're new here, I want to bring you up to speed on, on what we're doing. We're in the middle of a series called Church Life for the rest of, of the summer. And what we're talking about is what it looks like for all of us together to be committed to Jesus, to be committed to Jesus's family, the church, and to be committed to Jesus's mission. We're talking about what does it look like when, when the liberating good news, what does it look like when the gospel inspires us to live as a true community, in biblical community, to be a community of grace on mission, the kind of community that we need and the kind of community that our city needs. Now, today we're going to be looking at the issue of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. There's a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to unity and diversity. So let me back up a little bit. As most of you know, that I'm from National City, South, South Bay. And when I first got to Escondido, as an outsider coming in, casual observance of how Escondido like, works and all that, um, I noticed that, I noticed that Escondido was pretty diverse. You look at the demographic reports and all that, it's pretty diverse. But I also noted some, noticed something that was different from where I came from. What I noticed, again, just a casual observation, it seemed that, that people here in the city seemed to kind of quietly segregate themselves. Now, if you're from here, you may not notice it as much, but me as an outsider coming in, I noticed that people kind of segregated themselves. And I wasn't used to that. And, and when I came here at the church and, and I looked at mostly white faces looking at me, it, it, it kind of freaked me out. And, and I'm white, you know, so that was, that was weird. And it was my hope, it's been my hope and prayer that God would grow us into a church that, among other things, among other things, that we would be a church that would be just rich in diversity and unity. A church that, that brought together Christians and non-Christians, rich and poor, young and old, hip and unhip, uneducated and educated, red and yellow, black and white, the religious, this religious background, that religious background, no religious background, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Independents, Greens, and whatever else is out there. Why? Well, I could give you a long list of reasons, but here are my top two. First, that's what Jesus wants, and I'll show you that in a second. And then secondly, that is how we will impact our, and bless our city. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus pray for this. Look what it says. He says, Father, I pray that all who believe, I pray that all who believe in me may be one, just as you are one in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that I am who I say I am. That I came to deliver God's people. Jesus prays for rich diversity in radical unity. So that people in our segregated city might see our love for one another and say, what in the world is going on there? This is critical. Because when... When there is a lack of unity in diversity, 
it, it's only natural, it is only natural that people on the outside looking in would say, how in the world can Christians talk about love when they don't even get along with each other? Well, thankfully, I, I think I, I've noticed, maybe you have too, over the last few years or so, I've noticed the dynamics changing a bit here. Our church has been uh, developing and growing in both diversity and unity, and I thank God for that. Now, what I want us to think about this morning is how we can grow even more in that, okay? How we could even grow more in that. I mean, imagine what heaven's going to be like. God's called us to reflect what heaven's going to be like, to reflect the kingdom of God. And since we are a community of grace, that means we're saying we're all sinners, all sinners welcome. That means that we're going to sin against each other. <laughs> so we need to be a community of grace, and we need, to we need to anticipate divisions that happen within the church. So how can we experience even greater community that causes people to say, how is that even possible? Well, I think this passage in Corinthians gives us the answer. Like our city, Corinth was incredibly diverse. And the gospel went out. And lives were, were changed. Rich and poor, free and slave, religious and pagans, various ethnic groups. Lots of people who were just significantly different than one another. They, they all had their lives changed because they received the gift of faith. They, they looked to Jesus as their king and savior. They became part of Jesus' church. Brothers and sisters who were totally different than one another became family. They all became part of the same church. And what do you think happened next? With all those different people from different backgrounds and different perspectives and cultures. and What do you think happened next? Divisions. Right? There were divisions based, I mean, even just reading the epistles, reading Paul's letter, you see there were di divisions based on theology, division, divisions based on ministry emphasis, divisions based on demographics, divisions based on this plain old personality conflicts. So Paul writes to them, and he says that the, in his letter, we see that the problem of divisions is such a priority that he addresses it throughout this long letter here in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 11, and chapter 12. That's a pretty important issue to Paul, I would say. This morning, we're going to focus on chapter 11 to answer the question, how can we, as a church, grow more as a diverse community and a united community? Well, first, if you're taking notes, there's, there's a note page uh, in your, your bulletin. There should be pins in front of you. If you're taking notes, first of all, realize, this is critical, that divisions in the church is inexcusable. Divisions in the church are inexcusable. Well, Paul writes this, starting in, in, in verse 17. Listen to this. He's saying this to the uh, church in Corinth. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now, the translation says, I do not praise you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized, right? When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. <laughs> wow, tell us how you really feel, Paul. Right? He is a straight shooter. So, what's the problem here that the Apostle Paul is, is addressing? Was it that, that, that people were getting hammered? They're coming together for, for church and doing beer bongs and like tequila poppers and stuff like that. Was that the problem, drunkenness, when they were getting together? Well, drunkenness was definitely a problem, but that is not the main problem. The main problem was divisions. And it seems here to be a division between the rich and the poor. Paul says, you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. Now, we don't have all the details about this. Okay? We don't have all the details of what's going on here. And I think that is probably a good thing because it's our tendency to say, well, well, that's not exactly my situation. That's not exactly our situation. You know, so we don't need to apply that to us. Well, because of the lack of details, I think that we can look at this and apply it to all of our divisions. Financial, theological, philosophical, ministry, emphasis, marital, strain, relationships, whatever it is. Now, the context here, the context in which, which the Apostle Paul is addressing divisions is the Lord's Supper. People were bringing their divisions to the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you know what, if, if that's what you're doing, if you're bringing your divisions to the Lord's Supper, you might be going through the motions, but that's all you're really doing. So, let's do this. Let's, let's try to um, apply this to, to, to our church here. Let's dig in our own lives, our own hearts. Let's dig a little deeper. Let's, let's go ahead and meddle a little bit. Can we do that? And what is the cause of division? Well, we usually think, we usually think that the cause is our differences, right? It's our race, our income, our education, our, our, our theological emphasis, our personality types, but that's not it. We may divide along those lines, but they are not the cause of our division. So let's keep shooting straight here. The cause of our division is our pride and our insecurity. That's what it is. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to our pride and our, our insecurity. So, look what Paul says. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In another translation, it says, You guys focus on your differences to show which one of you has God's approval. So Paul's getting to the root of it. I mean, this means that, that our divisions are caused by two sides of the same coin. Pride and insecurity. So, let's bring this home. Let's, 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 uh, let's see where the rubber meets the road here. Let's go ahead and ask ourselves. Let me ask you this. Is there any division? Is there any division between you and another Christian right now? Any brokenness in a relationship between a brother in Christ or a sister in, in Christ? And it, you know what? Maybe you're thinking that. And it's painful right now. And right now it might feel painful to, to, to realize, to accept the, 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 the reality that, that division in the church is, is inexcusable. 
But another way to say that is, you know deep down that's not the way things are supposed to be. And so Paul leads us to examine our hearts and to look for for how our pride and our security has played a part in creating that division. I mean, we're told as long as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. So this is important that we do this together collectively as a church, right? But we also need to own this personally. Because, I mean, I think it's important for us to talk in terms of collective body of, of Christ as, as, as family. Yeah, that's, that doesn't happen nearly as often as it should in a, in a lot of preaching. I think it's important for us to talk in terms of like a corporate, corporate gathering. But also the danger of that is um, this kind of deflection syndrome that, that I must be taught, the pastor must be talking about somebody else, not me. So we need to look at this as a church, but we also need to own this personally. We need to personally check our hearts in this. Ask God to show us the sin in our heart, and he will answer that prayer. God, show me my pride. God, show me my insecurity. And then once we do that, what's the solution? Well, whatever the solution is, must address the underlying problem, right? It must address our pride. It must address our our insecurities. And how in the world do we do that? That's our second point. If you're taking notes, our second point is this. Remember the cross, okay? Remember the cross. Paul says uh, in verse 23 this. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we see here, what Paul's getting at here, is that the only solution to our division, the only solution to our lack of unity in Christ, the only solution is to remember the cross. Now, I know, I say stuff like this a lot, and it might just go like in one ear and right the other, out the other, and, and it may seem simplistic, but, but it's not. I think this is important to always come back to because many Christians think that the cross is just for uh, people who aren't Christians. It's it's the the non-Christians that that are really the only ones that need to hear the message about about the cross. But Christians, you know, after that, they need to start growing. They need to go deeper than the cross. You can't go deeper than the cross. You cannot go deeper than the cross. You can never grow without continuing to focus on the cross and the implications for you and your heart and your life. I mean, just look at the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. He was the most brilliant theologian that ever lived. He knew God's word. He knew philosophy. He knew culture. He knew knew people. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what does he say? I want to invite you all to read this verse together with me now. Read it now. I have resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. 
Paul goes on to explain that it is the cross that is the wisdom of God, and it is the cross that is the power of God. And every single issue that the Apostle Paul addresses in this letter, he addresses with the cross. You know what that means for you right here, right now in your lives with whatever it is that you're struggling with? The solution to all of your difficult problems, all of the difficult problems in our hearts, all the difficult problems in our relationships, all of our difficult problems in our character, all of our difficult problems you know, in our spirituality, it is, the solution is ultimately found in the cross. You will not find it anywhere else. You just won't. So Paul says, remember the cross. And then draw the implication. The implications. What, what difference does the cross make when it comes to my heart and my relationships, my character, and my spirituality? And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. When we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming. What is it that we're proclaiming when we share the Lord's Supper with one another, when we are in communion with God and one another as, as a family. What is it that we're proclaiming when we participate in this, when we take the bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it? What is it? Two things. First of all, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you are proclaiming, Jesus died for me. I mean, think about the implications of that. Think about the implications for that, for all of us. Jesus died for me. The implication is this. Let me apply it to, to my heart up here right now, okay? The implication is that I am so lost, that I am so, so sinful, I fall so, so far short of God's holiness and his standards that it took nothing less than the death of God the Son to save me. It also means that I am so loved beyond what I could possibly imagine because Jesus was glad to die for me. And this is true for you as well. Do you see what happens when you remember the cross? When you remember that, that, that truth that Jesus had to die for you and Jesus was glad to die for you? You know what happens in your heart when, when you get that? Your pride gets replaced with humility. And your insecurity gets replaced with confidence. That's, that's what happens when you get it. And as a result, as a result, you will not, you cannot feel superior to anybody, anybody, or inferior for that matter. You will treat all people with dignity and respect. I mean, even, even people who have made themselves your enemy. God says, love your enemies. <laughs> there must be some clause in there that lets us off the hook. Second, when Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you, he uses the plural form of you. We talk about this. It's been coming up a lot lately. The closest thing that we have to the plural form of, form of you in English comes from the South. And what is it? Yeah, oh, that's right. And if you're from Jersey, you say use, as in use guys. When Jesus uses the plural form, he reminds us that he died for all who trust in him. To make us one. 
And they're precious to him. So precious, he paid the price of his blood. Now, we're going to go back to the people on your mind, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a division in you, or your relationship's strained, or, or, or you're avoiding them, or, or, or you just don't care about them, and you, you'd be happy if you never saw them again, or if they would just go away. Okay, who, who is that in your mind? Think of someone, or several someones, with whom you have divisions. They're a brother and sister in Christ, but you don't agree on theology, you don't agree on politics, you don't agree on, on music, you don't agree on, on culture, you, whatever it is. And they might even just irritate you. So maybe you're polite, but you wouldn't seek them out and hang out with them like family that you love. Because we don't really have that much in common. We don't click. And they bug me. Paul's challenge to us is to remember the cross. Let me apply this to me personally, okay? So, what I need to do is I need to view these brothers and sisters as a gift from the Lord. Especially the ones that bug me. And the gift card says, Dear Matt, I knew you would need someone like this in your life. You're welcome. Love Jesus. Oh, P.S. Remember, I died for them as I died for you. That should change my whole attitude, my whole perspective, the way I treat other people. We experience unity in the church as we remember the cross. And then, next, if you're taking notes... We experience unity in the church. In order to do that, be sure to discern the body. And I'll explain what that means. Okay? Paul says in verse 27, if you're following along, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning or guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. Now, we'll talk in a second about what it means to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But Paul is warning us that it is serious. Therefore, verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner has something to do with with not discerning the body. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, time out. I have learned here that that Paul's not making a general application here in this verse. He is not saying that the Christians that you know who are sick or who have died have taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Somebody gets called and says, I know what you did. He's not saying that. God gave Paul a prophetic insight that applies to a, a, a specific situation there in Corinth. However, the next verse, verse 31, does have general application. Let's look at it. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. So even the judgment of God in this is filled with grace. God graciously disciplines those whom he loves to save us from condemnation in the final judgment. Now, 
Here's the key question. What in the world does it mean to take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner? Well, it, it means to take the bread and cup without discerning or recognizing the body of the Lord. Okay, but what is it that we're supposed to discern? What is it that we're supposed to, to recognize? Two things. First, remember verse, verse 23? The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And what did he say? This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So to recognize the body of the Lord is to believe that on the cross, on the cross, Jesus gave his body as a sacrifice for all of our sin so that we could be delivered, so that we could be delivered from judgment, so that we could be delivered and live with him forever to unite us, to make us one with him and each other. So if you receive the Lord's Supper, you are declaring that you believe that. You believe that. That you put your faith in Jesus as your king. You have put your faith in Jesus as your deliverer. And if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, uh, God, God's word says, well, don't receive the Lord's Supper because you'd be making a statement that isn't true. Instead, receive the real thing first. Receive Jesus. Paul says in, in Colossians, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, when you participate in the Lord's Supper, listen to the message of grace that the Lord's Supper proclaims. And put your faith in Jesus as your king. Put your faith in Jesus as your deliverer. Trust him this morning. Follow him this morning. He loves you. He died for you to give you life. And you have been welcomed. You've been invited and welcomed into the, his family, the family of God. So to recognize or discern the body of the Lord is to believe that the body was given for you. That's the central truth of the gospel. But now, Paul draws out the implication of, of unity. Paul goes on to say that the body of the Lord is his church, for which he gave his life. Now, in the, in the previous chapter, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper there too. And he says this, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's saying that the bread not only represents Jesus' body given for us, it also represents that through his death and in him, we are united in one body of faith. And just, he knows, he knows that, that we'll move on to something else or, or we won't catch this. And so he hits this again in chapter 12 to make sure it sinks in. And he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. To discern the body of the Lord is to recognize that we are one. So you know what that means in response to the gospel? It means that we commit ourselves to preserving unity. We commit ourselves to promoting unity, unity in Christ. 
We pray for unity. We work for unity. We fight for unity in the body. And you might think, well, it really shouldn't be that hard. But it is. We're all sinners. We're a community of grace. We're all sinners. We're going to sin against each other. It's going to be difficult, but it is worth it. It's worth it. So, what if, what if, as you're anticipating participating in the Lord's Supper, what if there is division between you and another Christian, whoever it is that's on your mind? Should I not take the Lord's Supper then? Well, only if you're not willing to respond to the gospel and then do anything about it. But if you are willing to pray and do in response to the gospel, do what you can to seek reconciliation, you should take the Lord's Supper, reflect on the significance of it, and, and, and reflect and, and examine your heart in preparation for it, and confess your sin, bask in His grace, and it's pictured in the Lord's Supper, and you receive the grace of God that you need to seek out pers- that person in reconciliation. If you're not interested in that, and you just, bitterness is just rooted in your heart, then by all means, I mean, why even bother with it? But if, if you are, you have, your heart has responded to the, to the gospel and you're convicted, you know that you need to confess your sin of pride and insecurity and go reconcile to him in response to the gospel, you're determined to go seek out that person in reconciliation, then by all means participate and, and receive the strength found in the grace of God as you reflect on, on what it means. And then finally, last. Welcome one another. Um, this one's shorter, but it's important. Paul says in, in, in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, when he says, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, and then says, wait for each other, he uses a word that can be translated as welcome, or welcome each other. The problem was that as they came to the Lord's Supper, some people were acting as if certain people weren't even there. That's not very welcoming, is it? In this case, the rich were acting as if the poor weren't welcome. But you know what? It could be any other kind of division as well. So my question for you this morning is, are you withholding your welcome from any brother or any sister? Who is it? Are they in this room? Or maybe they're not just here this, this Sunday? Any other Christian that might be a part of another church? Who are you withholding your welcome from? Any brothers and sisters that come to mind? Or maybe, maybe you haven't thought about it. Maybe you don't even know because you look right past them. Like they're not even here. It's easy to do. I'm, I'm guilty of it all the time. Let's just be honest and examine our hearts in this. Paul says division in the body is absolutely inconsistent with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is all about welcoming us into his heart and into his home. It's all about entering into the closeness of having a meal with God as his family. God welcomed us through the body and the blood of his son. Therefore, Paul says, 
when you come together for the Lord's Supper, welcome one another. So, when we gather together as a church, when we gather together like, like, like now, like on sun, Sunday mornings, the encouragement is this. In response to the gospel and in light of our identity as family, brothers and sisters, notice one another, greet one another, love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, be hospitable to one another, reconcile with one another, speak the truth of the gospel to one another. The only way, the only way we can sincerely love and welcome one another is to remember the cross. And I'll close, I want to close with this. I want to close by, by reading the words to the song that, that we're going to sing when we participate in the Lord's Supper together. Because so often it's easy to stand, the music plays, you start singing, you don't even think about what it is that you're saying, you're just trying to get the tune right, whatever. But I want you to focus on the words. The song is When I Survey. And it says this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and, and, and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that, that our identity is, is rooted in you. And we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, that you will never leave us. That you will never forsake us. That even if the whole world walks away, we have enough because we have you. God, I pray, Lord, as, as we reflect on the truth represented in the Lord's Supper this morning, that we were so, that every single one of us, and especially me, were so lost, so sinful, there was a price to be paid that we could never pay, that you had to die on the cross for us, and that it was just. And at the same time, you loved us so much, you were glad to do it. God, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for being so self-righteous. So often we think that, that we, we didn't need, or that we're not that bad, or, or we, we're, we are good enough, and, and live in denial of all the things that we've ever, we've ever done. So we try to forget it. 
But we thank you for your grace because your grace enables us to bring it out into the light, knowing that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, this morning, in this moment, I pray for everyone sitting in these chairs or standing in the back, wherever they are. God, I pray, Lord, that you would eliminate the distractions, that we would be able to focus on your gospel, that you would focus on your message, reflect on it, and, and, and just piece together the, the importance of it for our hearts and lives. God, give us the freedom to confess our sin and turn to you and to trust in you. To take that step of faith. God, I pray as I do every single Sunday morning, if, if, if there's anybody here that has not trusted you yet this morning, has not decided to follow you, God, I pray, Lord, that, that, that you, would, you would give them the grace, that you would give them the courage, that you would give them the faith to follow you. Help them to recognize that stirring in their heart is the Holy Spirit drawing them to you to receive new life. God, as Christians, help us to continue to survey the cross, to look to the cross, that it may cultivate within our hearts humility and root out our self-righteousness. And fill us with, with confidence and boldness for your glory and the blessing of others. We pray this in your name. Your hands go bowed.